nice to be here, um, just next door to the OIL, but I've never made it to this room before. So I thought this is partly based on some work I've done with Lillian Edwards, who's uh, in the law school at Strathclyde. Um, I thought the most useful thing to do with this audience was to focus on the social socio end of social legal studies and try to prompt some debate about the law with, with all of you. Um, I think it was just saying, figures about usage. This is the States, but of course the UK and, and other uh, advanced economies are very much followed this trend. Um, you can see young, younger people, so 18 to 29 year olds, up to 86. So actually that, that seems to be a, a peak because Pew has just has published one more year of figures more recently and that went down to 83% actually. So the, the, you know, the 18 to 29 year olds seem to have peaked, um, but the other age groups, as you can see, are catching up very quickly. I think, again, in last year's figures, the, uh, the 30 to 49 year olds are, are almost catching up with um, the young, younger adults. Uh, and in general, what seems to be happening in markets where Facebook is mature, particularly in the United States, it seems to reach getting on for two thirds of the online population. So uh, there might not be scope for enormous further growth in the United States, but obviously in the rest of the world, um, that's a little bit behind here, still still scope for enormous growth. They say now they, they are up to 900 million users. Uh, Facebook itself, of course, there are lots of other social networking sites. I'm going to focus on Facebook just because it's so well known and, and well used, but please don't take anything I say to be particularly critical of Facebook itself, unless I say um, this is specific to uh, Facebook. So, does anyone in the room not have a Facebook account? Ah, so that's more than I would have expected. I think I just deactivated mine a few weeks ago. I've had five years of addiction, but uh, uh, we'll see. Um, so, most people are very familiar with it. What, what perhaps is slightly surprising, even even to pe many people who are using it day to day, but but aren't you know they aren't data protection lawyers or computer scientists that are thinking through the the, uh, the implications of what they're doing is how much data social networking sites store. So you've probably heard of this case that an Austrian law student last year filed a subject access request with Facebook Island, of course under the data protection directive and its implementations into EU member state law. You are allowed, as a, as a data subject, you can go to any organization that holds personal data on you and ask them for it. Um, Facebook had sort of been avoiding, trying to avoid the issue up to this point, but he was persistent, of course, as a law student. And uh, Facebook ended up giving him a CD with 1200, over 1,200 pages of data related to him, which, by the way, he claims is not all of the data that Facebook holds about him. Uh, and so he, did it. he was an enthusiastic user of Facebook, but not completely out of the ordinary in his use of Facebook. They really are tracking every last thing that you, that you do on Facebook. You know, not just obvious things like who your friends are, but who you send friend requests to, who you turn down, event pages you look at, whether you sign up for them or not, things you search for, although they keep those records for a shorter period of time because they recognize the particular sensitivity of that. Um, and Facebook, of course, I mean, this is one of the things with subject access requests, uh, it can become very expensive for companies very quickly if there is an online campaign, campaign say, encouraging people to send subject access requests to a company. They, they are allowed to charge in the UK up to £10 for answering a request, but usually it will cost much more than that if the systems aren't highly automated within the organisation. So that's what Facebook has now done. Um, you can go to a page and in the account settings part of the website and say, give me all of the data from my account. Uh, that tool gives you, according to 
at Trends, uh, about half of what, of what Facebook is actually um, holding. That means you could, of course, file a subject access request with Facebook and ask for the rest of it, but we, we haven't got to that point that well, people haven't done that publicly and talked about it yet anyway. Of course, all that data is not just sort of sitting there uh, languishing with Facebook trying to dream up uses from it. You can, you can do all sorts of analysis on the data. There are tools like this touch graph Facebook browser uh, where you can sort of zoom around friend networks, pick out, you know, group cliques and groups and do all sorts of clever analysis. Of course, social networking sites, like most other online properties, in fact, are what they really what they want to do is show you relevant adverts they hope you will click on and that's how they earn their money. That's all that's you know that's all there is to it. There's nothing sinister about what Facebook is doing. Um, how are other people using that data? Um, of course I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't find this a surprise. Some people claim to find this a surprise, but of course employers are tempted to, to look up people that they are um, interviewing. This is from the UK sur survey from late 2009. I imagine the figures are even higher now. Of course, some admissions tutors will be tempted. Uh, of course, there are, there are incentives for insurers um, to to know about this data. So this is, this is a really interesting project from Deloitte Consulting. Uh, and what they were saying was, you can find all sorts of interesting things out about people, not from them directly telling you, you know, of course, no one's going to write on their social network profile, I um, live a very, you know, lazy lifestyle, eat terribly, have high, high blood pressure, and so on, and, you know, so on and so on and so on, uh, and, then, and then share it with an insurer. But through mining the data and looking for associations, uh, you can find that, that some um, lifestyle and other kinds of personal data are, are so closely associated with the more direct risk factors that insurers will be interested in. So for example, here, the fact, apparently, I didn't realize this was so direct, but the commuting distance is of great interest to health insurers because apparently it's um, uh, really so stressful to commute a long way for a long period of time, it significantly impacts on your health. Uh, you know, the kind of TV that you're watching, uh, high television consumption is probably a slightly more obvious sign. Um, how, whoops, how that data translates into the risk assessment factors, and then of course, how, how, how far the insurance company is going to chase after your business, offer you discounts and so on, based on what kind of risk you are. Of course, not such a big issue in a country like the UK, where you have a very large state-funded healthcare, but in the US and, and other countries, that's, that's becoming a very big issue. Of course, um, insurers can't compel people to, to provide, you know, to like them on Facebook, in effect, to, you know, to do the technological equivalent of giving them access to all of this data on their social networking profile. But it's very easy economically to price your products in a way that give people very strong incentives to do this. You know, like the, like the no claims discount on your driving insurance. You say to people, you know, health insurance costs X. If you friend us on Facebook, we'll give you the third off. Um, because we can use that as a way then to, to more closely model your risks. So the, 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 point, of, the point of me saying all of this is, just, is just, to, just to say, you know, it's not just that the social networking sites are collecting lots of personal data, some that's explicitly volunteered by their customers, a lot which is implicitly provided by their customers through that interaction with the site, 
and even, and even further than that, a lot can be inferred from all that data uh, by parties that might not be at the front of the user's mind when they are liking you know, a TV page or something on a social network. So some, some of the, I just mentioned a couple of interesting other, other legal issues for, that we can talk about later. It's one thing to, to talk about data protection um, in relation to, you know, I choose to share something with a second party, what then does contract law and data protection law allow that second party to do with the information? Uh, and a lot of discussion about privacy law policy on the internet, particularly because it's so US influenced, uh, is all about the sort of, you know, the, the, the individual rational, the conception of the individual rational user. If you just give them enough information about what in, you know, the privacy policy, what data is being gathered, how it's being used, and so on. And then they can make their own minds up if the, if the benefits are greater than the costs. They either sign up to a service and use the service, or they don't. Um, I think social networks have some features that, that, even coming back later on to whether that concept of the rational user is a useful one or not, even aside from that, uh, I think social networks have some features that, that complicate that discussion. So number, number one, uh, the fact it makes social network sites make it so easy for you to share information about other people. So it's not a choice you're making to share information with Facebook and whoever uh, else you're giving access to. It's, it's informa information, your choice to share information about your friends or your colleagues or uh, your, your family or people you're just interacting with on a day-to-day on -day basis. So the, the really obvious way this happens on Facebook is the tagging feature. So I'm sure you've all seen when you, you know, when you want to upload a photo, uh, Facebook now even will do facial recognition and will suggest to you, you know, is this person in this photo David Erdos? Yes, it is. Okay, Facebook will add a, add a tag and then by default, um, that photo then will show up in all of David's friends' news stream. And I, I think actually this must be the single biggest feature of Facebook that cause, causes um, premature career terminations. Because if you, I'm sure you can imagine so many ways, you know, if you're, if you're friends with your boss or your colleagues, uh, and then different groups of friends are sharing pictures of parties and so on, uh, often not pretty consequences. Um, <laughs> the, I keep using this acronym, this is the Article 29 Working Party. It's the collection of the national data protection regulators. There's one in each EU member state under the Data Protection Directive. And they, they have this working party where they consider issues and, and publish opinions. And they publish one about social networking. And they said, um, social network sites should tell users only put up information about other people uh, with their consent. Does anyone think that actually happens in practice? The privacy controls in Facebook are a sort of topic all in all on their own. So they've become more sophisticated over the years. And they do now offer you uh, options like saying, um, if someone tags me, don't automatically share that information with my friends. You know, ask me first or, or don't ever share it, in fact. Um, uh, you can say, I don't want a facial recognition feature to suggest me when other people put up photos around me and so on. But again, you know, did, did, did you all know those options existed? Have you, have you set them? Yeah, so some people have. So a, a lot more people know about these now than they used to. It used to be the case, even just a couple of years ago, that people 
that usually had no idea that there were all these settings hidden away. And the power of the defaults that Facebook and, and other sites uh, set is you can give everyone lots of options for control, but if most people stick with the defaults that you set, by and large, it's, it's not uh, going to have a big impact. Um, and actually, there's a, there was a really interesting paper that some people at Cambridge University did a couple of years ago where they looked, they analyzed about 40 different social networking sites. They looked at their privacy policies, they looked at their privacy controls, they looked at where privacy was mentioned on the site, and so on. And what they concluded was, first of all, social networking sites don't they don't want to even use the word privacy as far as possible because actually there's lots of social science research that shows if you even just saying the word privacy to people gets them to think about privacy more than they would be normally and gets them to be more cautious in disclosing information than they would be normally. So social networking sites don't want to talk about privacy unless they have to. The law makes them in certain ways in, in Europe. They, they try to hide that away. They like the fact that that keeps the privacy fundamentalists happy uh, that you know, the, the, this is Alan Weston's uh, splitting of the population based on survey data into about about a, qu a quarter privacy fundamentalists, a quarter really don't care and don't know who's in the middle that will balance costs and benefits. Uh, but the, the economics of social networking sites absolutely are you want people to share because that's what will keep bringing your users back to the site where you can show them adverts and it will draw in their friends also. So from, from that economic perspective, social networking sites, you know, they'll give you the control, but by default, usually they'll, they'll make it uh, share everything. Mark Zuckerberg does say, I mean, I, I think this is his honest opinion, he does say, if everyone just shared more and was more open, the world would be a better place. That is Facebook's mission statement, apparently. Um, whether, you, whether you agree with that is, is another question. Um, Another interesting set of, set of issues face, Facebook itself raises, just because it's so large, is what they call their platform, which allows Facebook features to be integrated elsewhere on the web and to allow apps to come into the Facebook world. So when, you, you know, when you're biting your friend and turning into a zombie, which was all rage two or three years ago, uh, you know, that's an app. So millions and millions of apps, you know, playing Scrabble and all these, all these different things. They, of course, are given access to your profile data on Facebook. And actually, often, your friend's profile data as well. Um, because you have access to this user, because your, your friend has, you know, consciously or otherwise, has privacy settings which gives you as a user access to it. Facebook, Facebook, sorry, Facebook extends that to all of the apps that you choose to install. You can see that data as well. So this this was a concern that, that consent from one user may actually expose data from another. Uh, the apps will also transmit user IDs from Facebook out, out of the site. Facebook always makes a big um, play to the fact that Facebook aren't selling the data to other companies. They're holding it and then showing you adverts. They're, they're selling your demographic, if you like. If you like, you know, it, they allow an advertiser to say, "I want to show this advert to someone of this age in this region with these interests," and and so on. Facebook aren't, but by and large, they aren't sending data outside Facebook. But this is an except, an important exception to that because Facebook user identities are going out to the advertising tracking companies um, that are that are watching, trying to build profiles of people right across the web. Um, I'm sure you've all seen the, you know, the Facebook like and the tweet this little buttons on increasingly on you know, the Guardian for just 
one of many examples, as a way to easily share with your with your Facebook friends. You know, I read this article and I thought it was interesting, a way to quickly show that on Facebook. What those are doing at the same time, just as a way, because of the way the web works, every time you see a Facebook icon or Twitter icon on a web page, that means they know you're looking at that web page because you know they can see your web browser has requested the, the graphic from their servers and they know the page that it's embedded in. Uh, and so that is revealing information back to Facebook and Twitter. Interestingly, by and large, Twitter, I think, is, is better than Facebook on privacy in some ways. But this is one area where Twitter actually go further than Facebook. They are, every time you see a tweet this button on the web page, Twitter knows you visited that page if you're signed into Twitter. Um, and Twitter is actively recording that now and profiling your interests and then trying to suggest um, other Twitter users for you to follow that have similar interests based on their web browsing behavior. Facebook say they're not they're not yet doing that doing that. But even just the possibility of it, let the, the state data protection authority in Schleswig-Holstein in Germany um, to say this is this is a breach of German data protection laws. You shouldn't be doing this because you're not you know people aren't properly consenting to be followed so so widely across the web. So I'll, I'll refer a few times also to this opinion from the Canadian Federal Privacy Commissioner um, who in 2009, I think, uh, the student law clinic at Ottawa University Law School made a, a big complaint to the Canadian Federal Privacy Commissioner about all sorts of aspects of the law that have worked and uh, they investigated and, and came, up, came up with some interesting demands to Facebook. How enforceable those demands are, of course, is, is, a, is another question from a Canadian regulator to US headquarters company. But by and large, I mean, they were, they were sort of, they didn't demand the world, if you like, and by and large, Facebook complied. Although what, what happened in practice was Facebook's system was developing so rapidly that they, they sort of complied with what the Privacy Commission had asked for, but it soon became irrelevant because the system was changing so fast. And so, I'm sure you all remember this case if you were in Oxford at the time. Um, I'll talk a bit uh, now about how, you, how people think about how their data is used by companies like Facebook. Because um, most Facebook users aren't computer geeks or, or data protection geeks, and they aren't thinking through these issues as carefully as, as we are. Uh, so, reasonable expectations is a phrase that comes up a lot. In, in public discourse, it, um, in US, to, to some extent in US law, it's important. It's not so important to European law, but um, there, was, there was in 2009 this case where, as I'm sure you know, Oxford students like to celebrate the end of exams by pouring flour over each other's head and throwing wine at each other, which the town is putting pressure on the university to stop the students doing because it's messy and the town has to clean it up. And this year, these, uh, a number of students published photos on their Facebook profiles of this happening, and the proctors, uh, because they were part of the Oxford University network, were able to access all of those photos, and they did. And they, they used the evidence to fine the students about £200 each, and the students were outraged about this. Um, they were really, first of all, they were really surprised that it happened in the first place. They, they thought that Facebook was about sharing things with my friends. I never friended the doctors as <laughs> this came about. It was the default settings again. It was that at the time the default was if you joined when you joined Facebook, it, it saw your email address was 
www.oxford.org.uk. It joins you to the Oxford network, all staff and students and alumni were members of that network and by default they could all see each other's profiles. So this, this was how the proctors could do that. The, the students thought that the proctors were snooping on the private place. That was, there. that was what the student union said in its comments. Uh, people, some people online, the sort of the geek perspective was stupid students, you know, they didn't set the privacy settings right, so they shouldn't complain when this happens. Uh, but I think another legitimate perspective is, was there at least some partial issue with the fact that Facebook was not setting the right defaults for a reasonable expectation of privacy. And actually this, I'm sure it wasn't this individual case that caused this to happen, but after a number of cases like this, Facebook actually got rid of the whole idea of networks about 18 months ago. So there is, you know, there is no longer the Oxford University network that people by default can see everything in. Uh, and again, the Article 29 Working Party said in their opinion, social networking sites should ensure privacy-friendly and free of charge default settings are in place, restricting access to people you have explicitly said are your friends. Um, not to say, you know, you can't change those settings if, if you want to share with the proctors or the rest of the world, that's entirely your decision. Uh, but again, coming back to the defaults as the, you know, the sort of governing, governing principle here, and again, the Canadian Commission is saying photo albums and search engines as well, that the default settings then were that um, when you uploaded photos, they were, they were publicly viewable, not just people in your network, the whole world could see, could see photos, uh, and that uh, Facebook was starting to learn its lessons about privacy defaults on search engines. Uh, they, they warned all of their users, we are about to allow search engines to index your page, but you can choose not to, uh, not to have that happen. They gave people about three weeks notice, I think. You know, every time people logged into Facebook, they were reminded at the top of the, their profile that they had an option not to have all the, all the info on their page uh, indexed and therefore findable through Google and, and other search engines. And that's an important issue as well, because the way that most people navigate the web is through search. Um, and if, you know, if, if, if the employer or the admissions tutor is, is wanting to look at profiles, the first thing they will do probably is either go to Google itself or maybe even directly Facebook and search for the name of the person that they are considering. And that's how they would find you. Whereas if this, if this option is disabled, if you say, I don't want my profile to be indexed, um, it will be harder for people to find you. Even if the information is publicly available, it will be more difficult for them to find you. I'll say a few things about young people and privacy, because you very often hear people say, young people don't care about privacy. Uh, just look at how they behave online, and therefore, you privacy lawyers are going to think it's a dying idea, and we should just give up on privacy. And you, you, you really hear that very often in debates about data protection, online data protection, particularly from American technology companies uh, and American lobbyists, anti-data protection lobbyists. Um, but actually, there's quite a lot of social science research in the last five years uh, on what you know, people actually think and how they use social networks. So first of all, they, they mostly see the internet particularly social networking sites, as a private space. They don't think of it as public. They don't even think of it as, you know, my friends plus Facebook, which of course it is, or any other, any other social networking site that's hosting their data. They think of it as my, as my friends, where I can share data 
privately in people I already know, target information to my peer group. Um, and actually, within that, uh, one study even in 2007 found that often, often younger internet users are more au fait with the technology, they've grown up with it, they're digital natives, they're sometimes called, and, and they were using the privacy settings. Um, more than older users at that time. Um, another study, teenagers whose parents were actively monitoring their inter internet use showed higher privacy concerns and, and they were disclosing less online. Um, yes, there is a human impulse to connect and share information with friends, uh, but at the same time, people are used to managing the consequences of that in a face-to-face -face environment. Um, the one thing that the internet changes and, and makes it a bit harder to understand the consequences of disclosing information, of course, is that with the internet, that information, you know, I, I tell my friends, they may tell a few other friends at school uh, or college, but you hope that's as far as it goes. The internet makes it trivial for it to be electronically replicated and duplicated and potentially spread around the world to, to places you, you as an individual wouldn't so immediately think of as the context when you choose to share information. And that's something that teenagers actually specifically seem to be less good at doing, dealing with you know, the fact suddenly what might have been before quite separate contexts, the schoolyard, the home with the parents, uh, the, you know, some other area with youth centre or something with teenage friends, suddenly those contexts collapse. It's much easier for information to, to spread right across those contexts. Um, and another interesting thing that's been found more recently, actually, adult, adult users of Facebook are exhibiting some of the, these trends. That the what seemed like age-specific different ways of using Facebook a few years earlier seem to be spreading to older users as the older users become more au fait with the technology and more used to mediating their relationships electronically. When it comes to privacy protection and privacy law, um, uh, Chris Hufnagel and colleagues at the University of California at Berkeley uh, did um, a telephone survey of about a thousand randomly selected uh, young adults, I think 18, about 18 to 25, um, and asked them five quite straightforward questions about what protections they, they had for uh, online information under US privacy law. Um, you know, not difficult things that you might ask your law students in exams, but very straightforward things like what rights they have over information. And as you can see, 42% um, of them got all five questions wrong. They, they thought that there was much stronger protection in American law than there actually was for their privacy. Um, a second, second study looking at a very large number of students across 40 US colleges, finding out what their concerns were about different kinds of uh, data breaches. Um, most of them, you can see, 75% are concerned about passwords, social security numbers, which are a big deal in the States, credit card numbers. But actually, at, this, at least at this time, in 2009, not so many concerns of social networking sites. And the, the authors of this study, one reason they suggested that that might be the case is that uh, those students just hadn't, hadn't had so much practical experience as the consequences of disclosure of social network information as something very immediate as a, as a credit card number um, being lost. We did a uh, study here at Oxford, one of my postdocs um, did, a, did a survey of nearly 200 um, 
undergrad firstly undergraduates and 133 uh, final year undergraduates to see if the kind of information they disclosed was there were significant differences because we we thought when we set up the study um, first years might be quite focused on making friends um, you know sharing information, getting to know people, becoming popular, whereas final years might be more focused on getting a job and therefore it would be highly salient to them the idea well an employer might look at information online. Uh, but actually as you can see there, there was there wasn't a significant difference that the first years and final years were sharing uh, almost identically these kinds of information online. Um, we're doing a we are doing a follow-up study where we'll We'll, as many as we can, that, that cohort of first year students will ask again now that they're final year students to see if they individually have, have changed. But all, actually also interestingly in this, you see a lot of media stories about um, quite dramatic things people share, dramatically inappropriate things that people share online. Uh, but in reality, of course, that's not the norm. Uh, when, you, when you look at things like, you know, ask, when you ask students, are they sharing inappropriate photos themselves? As you can see, very small numbers of them were doing, were doing that. So they're actually behaving quite sensibly, at least at Oxford. Whether you can, whether you can generalize to other universities, I don't know. Um, another, another study we did in this, this same project that was quite fun in technologies, our colleagues at St Andrews University who were working with us, they, there, have been, there's been a lot, there have been a lot of studies about location privacy just using diaries where you, you, get your, you give your participants a questionnaire and you say, you know, how, willing, how willingly would you share your current location if you were in the library or a classroom or uh, at a pub and so on with the following people. The limitation those diary studies have is that you're asking people to think back to situations that actually might have been some, some time ago, they're not sort of catching them in the moment. So what our colleagues did was write some software to, Put, them, put it on mobile phones, which they gave to all their participants, and carried them around for two weeks. And at random times, they would get questions sent to the mobile phone saying, "Would you, you know, where are you now, and would you be willing to share your location with your parents, your tutor, your friends, different categories of people, uh, to try to work out um, where people were sensitive, you know, what categories of locations people were sensitive about, where the sensitivities were, and who, who, you, who you would share data. So there were 40 participants responded to over 2,000 questions over this period. Um, one thing that we were pleasantly surprised by was we, we thought one thing students might do is use location sharing as a sort of image management thing. That's often the way people use social networks. You know, they disclose things about themselves they think are positive and will, it will improve other people's opinion of them and, and, and conversely not share things about themselves they don't want people to know. So we thought, for example, people might like to share the fact they were in the library, especially to their parents. Look, mum dad, I'm working hard in the library. <laughs> but, but as you can see, that wasn't the, that wasn't the pattern actually. People were very happy to share uh, their leisure location with almost everybody. And we think the reason for this was it was it was very it was very instrumental. They were sharing for a purpose. If they were at the pub, they would be happy for their friends to come and join them. Whereas if they were in the library, they didn't necessarily want people to come and disturb them in the library. Uh, so that you know, being quite rational in that sense. There, I'll, I'll come back to the rational versus irrational. Um, in a moment, but that was that was a, an interesting result for us. So, onto the behavioural economics of privacy, which 
there's, there's been some very interesting studies uh, over the last couple of years as well, which become more and more relevant to, to policy and law questions. Um, so first of all, people tend to assume that, like Adam Weston, you have the fundamentalists that don't care so much and the don't knows in the middle. People's privacy preferences are stable over time. You know, they're carefully thought through, maybe they reflect some aspect of your thought of personality um, and experiences you've had over your lifetime. But you know, if I'm a privacy fundamentalist today, I'll be a privacy fundamentalist next week and next year and so on. But actually, the studies, there's someone called Alessandro Otisti, who's an economist at Carnegie Mellon, who's done a whole range of really fascinating behavioral um, economic studies on these questions over the last decade. And what they found, that's not the case at all. They found that privacy, concern about privacy is highly sensitive to contextual factors. So I already mentioned the first one. Making people think about privacy will make them much more and um, uh, much less willing to disclose personal information for, for some time period after you do that. Um, you might think people would be happier sharing information with a, with a professional looking organization that they think would take care of the information and abuse it and look after it. They found the opposite, actually, that, that, that people, their, their participants, I think, you know, these were careful, carefully done experiments. They, they weren't just opinion polls or sort of less powerful. Um, research tools, uh, people's, people seem to think, well, it, they, the, the thought process seemed to be, uh, if I share this quite sensitive information, and they were, they were trying, some of the information they were trying to get people to disclose was very sensitive, things like, uh, you know, that they, they um, seriously broken the law, like they had taken cocaine in the past, or they had cheated on university exams, uh, for example, in a university context. You think students would be quite reluctant to tell that to people within the university context. But actually, the really unprofessional-looking survey that they used as one of their conditions, which used text-speak in big, red, cartoon language, um, the students seemed much happier disclosing information than the, uh, the, 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 sort of the very formal, dry-looking uh, survey with lots of guarantees about how carefully the information would be protected and so on. Uh, they also did an interesting study with um, where they placed adverts in uh, the online New York Times to recruit people and then randomly assigned them to conditions where they asked them, again, questions about sensitive information, the kind I was just describing. Um, and they, it was a very simple uh, experimental treatment. They, they asked them either very obviously or in a slightly covert way. So, you know, have you taken drugs in the last decade would be the very obvious. And then something that, I mean, really was only very trivially, con uh, very trivially covert. So, um, even, even to the extent of just asking, asking them to answer the same question but phrased in a double negative, something like that, was enough to significantly increase the levels of disclosure. Uh, so people, you know, all these things showing that this idea of the perfectly rational individual making a careful calculation of choice when they disclose information isn't the way that people in practice actually think about privacy and make, make decisions about disclosures. Um, and, and this is a much broader theme in behavioral economics, that people, people are not homo economicus, they, they, they are not carefully considering the, the, um, the, all of the possible risks, costs, benefits 
for the rest of their lifetime producing, finding the net present value, weighing them up and deciding what to do for every decision. And of course not. You know, people have a band of rationality. They, you know, there's a, a limit to the amount of time your brain can spend on making decisions. Um, privacy is a particular, particularly hard in this case because the risks are very are highly probabilistic. So you know, I disclose one bit of information today to one party. I may disclose another bit of information next week to a separate party. In, in themselves, they're quite innocuous. Combined, they're slightly less innocuous, and actually, maybe combined with a third piece of information that's in the public domain, that will stop me getting maybe a loan, a small loan for a car in five years. I'm not going to be a disaster. It might stop me, in the, you know, the worst case, getting a mortgage, or um, or maybe stop me getting a job, which would be serious if that happened. Unlikely, but serious, abstract, quite far away, and people in general are very poor at judging those kind of risks. There's, there's lots of things all across economics literature. Um, also, most individuals, not just children, are bad at deferred gratification. So if you're offered you know, jam today, uh, disclose this bit of information, you can sign up to the social networking site and interact with all your friends and see their photos and go to cool parties. And, and maybe it could cost 10 years down the line. Most people, even if they had rationally calculated the privacy cost down the line, aren't good at saying no to jam today. Um, so, having said all of that about how people think about privacy and make information disclosure decisions, um, how to further privacy in social networks legally, and these are just these are just ideas. I'm, I'm absolutely not going to give you a line-by-line -line analysis of the new data protection regulation proposals. Because um, I think we could probably do a better job of that. But um, some, some ideas. And also, looking more broadly than just data protection law itself, I think consumer law perhaps has been underexplored in, in terms of protecting um, users. So, for example, looking at the quality of the consent that people give when they're signing up for Facebook itself and for the applications and all of these other uh, bits of code in the Facebook ecosystem. How informed is it? How, is it explicit? So European Data Protection Law says for sensitive categories of information like health information, which people certainly are sharing in social networking sites, are they giving explicit informed consent? So the Commission, in its, in its proposal for the regulation, is talking about having a more general principle of transparent processing. Great commission language, improving the modalities for the actual exercise of the rights of access to expectation, clarifying rules and consent. How far the regulation achieves this is, is quite another question. Should your current consent expose you to future risks that are actually quite hard for you to, to calculate? People talk about the eternal memory of Google. You know, once something's out there online, it's very hard to, to bring it back under control. My colleague Victor Meyer has written about the right to be forgotten, his book Delete, you know, should people have that right? Uh, where it becomes very controversial, of course, is, is as David researches, when it starts interacting with freedom of expression. You know, should, should I have the right to have something forgotten, which you know, was factual, which was perhaps a photo of something I did a few years back, um, maybe even it's in the public interest, maybe now I'm standing for election. Should I have the right to ask some, another Facebook user or more controversially, say a newspaper, to forget the information they have about me. Almost certainly not. Obviously, you have to, in the European framework and elsewhere, balance the rights to, to privacy, to freedom of expression, and so on. Um, 
can terms and conditions, which almost all um, online sites, terms and conditions do this kind of thing, try to exclude liability as far as possible for privacy and security breaches, be unfair consumer terms. The Commission is, is I think this will certainly happen, it's in the regulation, I think is relatively uncontroversial, bringing a, a general um, duty for organisations that suffer a data breach of personal data to notify, notify either regulators or users directly. Um, Commission would like to make it easier for individuals to bring an action before the national courts. Right now, what often, what the, most of the member states have done, including the UK, is in effect you have to really, your, your only choice is to complain to the national regulator and then they decide whether they will take action on your behalf and our regulator very rarely will do that. Um, and also, how meaningful are the sanctions? So, until recently in the UK, it was the case that the worst, effectively the worst that could happen for a breach, even a really extreme breach of data protection law, um, it, it was an offence, but the maximum fine, I think, was £5,000, and even that was very rarely imposed. That's been changed in the last couple of years, so now the maximum has gone up to half a million pounds, which is obviously much more meaningful. And then finally, um, the Commission is very keen on the idea of what they call PETS, privacy enhancing technologies. So this is the idea that um, you build the technology to better protect privacy from the start, rather than you know, the, the, all of the sort of legal potential remedies if things go wrong, you try to persuade the companies from the beginning you know, to, to have the privacy friendly default settings, for example, that the, the Canadian Commission was asking for. Um, and they want to promote that, not just within Europe, Obviously, Facebook is not a European company, most internet companies are not European companies. They would like to persuade uh, American and other uh, companies to do this. Well, how realistic that is, of course, is, is quite another question. Um, one particular, uh, I think, interesting area of European law is if, if social networks make it very easy, which they do, for people to publish information about others, online, does that make them more of a sense of data protection law, a data controller, which would impose all sorts of, of duties on them under data protection law? And there was a, there was a case where at, at the European Court of Justice, one of the earliest cases on, on the data protection directive, where a Swedish woman, Lindqvist, had put information on the website about her church, the church group that she was a member of, um, including the fact that one of the church group uh, was on, I think, sick leave, which is medical information. And she was prosecuted by the Swedish uh, authorities for doing that, saying breaching the data protection rules. The Swedish court asked the European court for an opinion on whether this came within the ambit of the data protection rules, and they said absolutely, absolutely it does. But I, 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 don't, I don't think anyone would say the fact that social networks make it easy for you to publish information about others means we have to extend these very extensive duties that are on organisations that process personal data right across the user base of Facebook. What the Article 29 working party said on this question is, they, they sort of, they, they, look, they found some phrasing within the ECJ decision that, uh, that just about works, which is to say, um, on a social networking site, if your profile is you know, if you really only are genuinely friends with people, you have at least some vague connection with, you know, that, that might be hundreds and hundreds or maybe, maybe low thousands of people, not tens of thousands of people, um, then you can say that the exception in the data protection directive for domestic purposes 
will, will cover your activity online and you don't therefore suffer from any of these duties. Um, at the same time, there's a limit how far I think you can take that exception 